Hello, and thank you for listening to The Green Room Podcast. I'm Denver Green, and this is my podcast where I talk to my friends about things they're passionate about. Check me out at facebook.com slash greenroompodcast. That's green with an E at the end. Or you can email me at greenroom at gmail.com. Today, we're diving into the realm of numbers, equations, and the incredible world of mathematics. Joining us is a brilliant Scott, a true aficionado of numbers and the historical narratives that have shaped the way we understand them. Together, we'll embark on a journey through the annals of mathematical history, exploring the profound significance of this discipline, and answering the age-old question, why does math matter? Get ready to be enlightened as Scott guides us through the numerical tapestry that underlies our world. Hello, Scott, and welcome to the Green Room Podcast. How you doing? Um, yeah, it's been pretty good. Um, how do we know each other? Uh, we met years ago at uh, an event with the Houston Atheists, which you just so- reminded me of a few minutes ago. <laughs> yeah, so long ago. I feel like I only went to like three or four, maybe a couple of Oasis things or whatever, and then mostly just kept in touch with everybody online. Yeah. Um, and I know... I was like you and a couple people. I try not to mention others by name on the podcast unless they've been on it. But uh, yeah, you're definitely one of the people I associate strongly with that time of my life. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think we we might have talked at I want to say the Natural History Museum. There was like some debate thing or presentation oh, like Aaron Ra was there. Yeah. Something. Yeah. That was, man, that was, that was almost about 10 years ago. Wasn't it? That was a, a long, long time. time. Yeah. yeah. They, they had this um, colloquium on evolution that uh, they put together as an answer to this homeschool group that was doing kind of like an answers in Genesis thing up in the woodlands. Oh, you remember that? Oh goodness. Yeah. It's not, it's not great. Yeah. All right, cool. But that's not what we're going to be talking about today. What are we going to be talking about? Uh, we're going to be talking about one of my weird special interests that I've indulged in over the last decade or so, which is the history of mathematics. Perfect. Uh, no, this is exactly the scenario for that. I love it when people can share their weird interests. <laughs> that's what I love to hear about. Uh, so history of mathematics. Um, how did you like find out that you're interested in this how this all start so my background is math and physics that's what i got my degree in it, it was physics and there's a lot of applied math and physics um so uh when my when my daughters were in middle school um i was helping them with one of their math assignments and i can no longer remember which one of them it was it was probably the older one um just said kind of exasperated who came up with this crap and why? <laughs> and so yeah. I said, Salem, it was probably Babylonian scribes trying to impress each other. But was that it? Impressing each other? I will find out and I will let you know. <laughs> and so okay. um, that's kind of what sparked my interest is I was like, gee, who, who did come up with this stuff and, and, and why? What was the real impetus behind this? They were doing, um, uh, they, were, they were basically covering, this was like, I think, sixth or seventh grade math, and they were doing Pythagorean theorem, 
like yeah just very low level kind of stuff because it was like middle school and they were basically using it to try to to determine what numbers were were pythagorean triples right right and what three four five yeah exactly exactly things like that um so what tickled the back of my brain about that and this was what picked my my first book was i remembered that there was this um babylonian tablet that had been unearthed it was called plimpton something or other i can't remember the name of it i'm i'm sure we can like sounds vaguely familiar yeah in post and and you can like bring in uh so plimpton is like the name of the person that collected it or the collection it's in or whatever and then it has a number next to it um but what this tablet turned out to be when they deciphered it was a list of pythagorean triples Oh, right. A, a big list of them. Uh, yeah. And so, you had a lot of free time back then. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, this is basically the, the vague memory of that is kind of what picked my first book for me. It was a book by an author by the name of Ellie Mayor. Uh, and the book was titled Trigonometric Delights. <laughs> Great name. And I picked that book because trigonometry was always, I remember trigonometry being about the first mathematics class that I ever was introduced to like in, in high school um, yeah. that I was like actually fascinated by. Oh. Um, and I remember trig as being like the first one that started to get a little confusing. Yeah. Yeah. So, like before that, it all just made sense. And then that one was the first. So I never took a pure trig class. I took um, like this was I, I got introduced to trigonometry in pre-calculus, like in 11th grade. And the summer before that, back in 1987, um, I had wanted to kind of like learn some of the concepts on my own. And I remember hearing so many people complaining that trig was so hard. So I picked <laughs> up this book. um back when all you had was physical bookstores. And I, I can't remember the exact name of it, but it was like a, a, a book about trigonometry that was kind of like told in storybook format to kind of make it fun. Oh, and I like that. Um, it was, it was actually really interesting. And then, you know, I don't know if it was because of that or because it really wasn't as hard as everyone seemed to be making it out to be. Um, when I, when we got to trig in that class, it was like, it was super easy. I found myself like explaining to all the other students when they didn't get the teacher's explanations, like <laughs> using the analogies and so on from the book that I'd read over the summer to the point that the teacher like called me aside one day and it's like, Hey, where are you getting all this stuff? And so I, I, <laughs> I pulled out the book. I'm like, I, I read this over the summer cause I was told trig would be hard and I wanted to prepare for it. And she's like, can I borrow it? You think, you think you're the only teacher around here? <laughs> Exactly. So she's like, can I borrow this? And so she started using that stuff in, in the class too. And, and, you know, she thought it was fantastic, but anyway, so that's kind of why I picked that particular subject matter trigonometry. And also because, uh, I had that vague memory of this, this, this tablet. And I had told my daughter that I thought it was Babylonian scribes making shit up uh, yeah. to impress each other. Um, so I'm like, okay, this is just a confluence of different things. This is the first book I need to read. And that book I notice is missing from my library. Uh, mm. I have this uh, history. I, I tend to lend books out to people, and I don't make a note of who borrowed them, and then I never get them back. Oh, I have a folder in my like Google Photos. Anytime someone takes a picture, uh, take anytime someone borrows something, I take a picture of them holding the thing. 
put it in that folder and then <laughs> exactly and then i'll finally take it away i'll delete the photo whenever they return it gotcha gotcha that's not a bad that's idea, good idea. Um, I'm kind of remembering like back in what was it, 2005, 2006, when the Battlestar Galactica reboot came on. Did you see that? Oh, yeah. And there was one quote in that that stood out to me because it was like something that was very relevant to me. It was when um, when Adama told uh, Madam President as he gave her a book mm-hmm. and she's like, you don't want it back. And he's like, he's like, my father once told me never lend a book. Yeah. Like, no, that, that makes sense. You're probably not going to get it back. So never. You just give it away. Exactly. Don't lend books. Just give them away. If if you don't want to give the book away, then don't lend it out to begin with. Now there's another book that I have on my shelf now that I must've bought close to 10 times now. Cause I keep giving. Oh yeah. And it's called Python crash course. Oh, that's a good one. Uh, In fact, one of the things that I'm doing at my current job right now is teaching my coworkers Python. Yeah. So, Someone's got to do it. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so the book was called Trigonometric Delights. <laughs> and it opened. The, the very first chapter was about that tablet, Plimpton, whatever it was. Um, I want to say 522, mm-hmm. but I could be wrong about that. Um, and it talked about, um, you know, the time period um, and what the ancient Babylonians were using mathematics for. Um, they were using it, among other things, to um, calculate areas of fields to determine how much tax was due on them, which is where the it's always taxes. Yeah, yeah. The, 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 so many of the um, so many of 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 the branches of mathematics have their roots in uh, very pragmatic endeavors. Right. It was only when kind of like you had a a class of scribes who were also professional mathematicians that they had the time to devote to just play with this stuff. Cause math is inherently kind of like a puzzle to solve. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so it, it's, it's fun to play with if you've got that kind of a mind. And so they would come up with literally shit to impress each other. <laughs> so I discovered in reading this book that my initial assessment was in fact very much accurate that (laughs) accurate um but so that was that was the start you know what what did they do with this stuff well you know some of the things i remember from this book which i read back in like 2011 so i'm i'm going off knowledge that's you know what 12 years old now um yeah you know the book explains that you know trigonometry basically had its roots in uh the babylonians coming up with this table of of pythagorean triples which suggested very strongly that they had invented an algorithm to find find them randomly chugging numbers in there and finding which ones work. They actually had an algorithm for it. Hmm. Um, And I think they actually published what the algorithm was. It's something that I think is, is actually taught in, you know, high school, but it's been so long since I've used that knowledge that I don't remember anymore. Um, sorry, I just wanted to ask if you could give a like one paragraph explainer as to what trigonometry is about. I want to say circles or something, but that's probably not right. So I've forgotten all of it. Most of what trigonometry deals with indeed is about circles, but the very name of it, trigonometry, three angles, it's, it's, it's the study of triangles. Mm. In particular, right triangles. Oh, okay that have a 90 degree angle and where do you often find right triangles inscribed in uh circles 
as you are tracing out the arc of them in, you know, if you're trying to show the height and, you know, the, the, the vertical distance from, you know, so where did this come about? How did this become useful? Well, you know, they wanted to be able to, um, measure positions of stars for timekeeping purposes, right? Right. Because all that is spheres. Exactly. So when, um, you know, when this star appears this high above the horizon, you know, it's time to plant the crops. When this star appears this far above the horizon, it's time to harvest the crops. Um, So Mm. being able to use the stars to keep time, calendrical time, was, was a very important and pragmatic thing. So they wanted to be able to accurately uh, time keep, you know, when it was time to plant, when it was time to harvest, things like that. Um, I like that. So, you know, you would uh, do things like measure how far above the horizon this star appears, you know, and then the, the question is, you know, how do you, you know, how, what, what is this, this quantity under this, you know, <laughs> where I'm pointing here, uh, we call it an angle today. Um, yeah. So what they devised the first, the first sign table wasn't a table of signs; it was a table of chords. And I don't mean musical chord; I mean C H O R D, which is like you know, a diameter. It's, it's a like- chord that goes through the center of a circle. So a chord is simply a straight line that bisects two points in a circle. Yeah. Okay. And a tangent is also the special case. It's all coming back to exactly. me. Exactly. A tangent is the special case where the chord intersects just one point. You could say that yeah. two points converge to one. So a tangent is a chord, a diameter is a chord, and then everything in between is a chord as well. Right. Um, okay. So they, they, they devised this table of chords, actually a table, if I remember correctly, of half chords, because if you're measuring the height above the horizon, that's what you're actually measuring is the half chord. Oh, yeah. You don't need to go all the way down. Exactly. You just need to go up. But somebody eventually at some point extended it downwards for the sake of symmetry and then discovered that they could do a whole bunch of other neat things because they'd made it symmetrical. Um, yeah. So <laughs> you had this table of chords, and it had some interesting properties. And then they were like, okay, so we're looking at the height and, you know, you had people that drew this circle and then drew the the chord there and like, well, what about the distance from where that chord hits the uh, horizontal and the center of that circle? Does that have any interesting properties? Mm -hmm. And bam, now you've got your cosines. Oh, so they just flipped. Yeah. They swapped it the opposite way. Yeah. And so like just everything just kind of grew naturally from those you, you, you had your, your, your signs, you had your cosines, you had, you know, tangent. Let's do the third one. Let's do the tangent. Right. And then, um, there were just all kinds of, 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 of game like transformations. Like if you remember doing all of those trig identities, Mm -hmm. high school, like when you were taking pre-calculus or trigonometry, one of the things that they did were all the trig identities, right? And those are are very game-like, like like remembering how to generate all of these other trig identities. And I, whenever I was tutoring a student, um, and every once in a while by serendipity, I'll come across someone who's like, yeah, my kid's having trouble with, with, with this class. And I'm like, yeah, you know, I'll, I'll spend some time helping them. And the way I, I always taught myself and the way I teach is, is to try not to remember too many details because your memory is fallible that way. I try to remember a process. A process is so much easier to remember 
than details. So I would remember, um, you know, sine squared theta plus cosine squared theta equals one. I'd remember a few other basic definitions. And then from that, you can basically derive everything else. I remember yeah. my uh, pre-calculus teacher calling me into her office after our midterm exam. And she's like, hey, Scott, um, you knew that you weren't supposed to bring a cheat sheet into the exam. So why is there a cheat sheet here? I'm like, I didn't bring that into the exam. I, I made that cheat sheet uh, as soon as you, the test started from memory. Yeah, you just write some notes to help. Exactly. You. And she's like, so you expect me to believe you, you memorized all this stuff? And I said, no, I didn't memorize all that stuff. I started with a few basic things. And so, so I'm like, here, let me show you what I do. And so I went to the board, just regenerated everything <laughs> from scratch and explained my process. And she's like, oh, okay, never mind. <laughs> Um, sure. well, no, but, but I guess that's not typical, but like, you know, um, that's the way when you know I the believe. formula, you don't need to do everything. You just, right. Like that's what a, a that's what a formula or algorithm is a function. Exactly. You just, it's exactly. a key to get more stuff. If you know the ba basic Pythagorean trig identity, sine squared plus cosine squared equals one, well, you divide yeah. everything by sine squared. And you get the one plus uh, cosine squared over sine. What is that? That's uh, cotangent squared. One plus cotangent squared <laughs> theta equals um, uh, one over sine squared, which is uh, cosecant squared. Right. Right. So I'll take your word for it. You 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 divide everything by all the other trig functions. You obtain all of these others, and then you start like squaring both sides, taking square, and then you just generate all these other. You know, once you start doing that, like all the other ones just kind of fall out of it. So that's the way I would always remember this stuff and teach this stuff is to teach, you know, remember a couple of key details and then remember the problem mm -hmm. of generating everything else. And bam, you can do it all yourself from scratch. You know, when when teaching this, I would teach the kids when you get your exam. First thing you do is flip over to the back page with that big piece of blank paper and draw yourself a unit circle and all the key points. Because <laughs> you're going to end up yeah. using that throughout the exam and spending two minutes to, to generate that will save you so much time later on in the exam. Right. You help you get more it. time. Exactly. Then. You don't have to remember it each time there's a question. You just flip to your cheat sheet that you just made after the exam started. <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah, no, it works out really well. So anyway, that was the first book that I went through. And so it was, it was, it was pretty interesting. It talked about all the different ways that trigonometry entered into and i wish i could pull up that book and, and, and pick out some interesting tidbits from it but like mm -hmm. um it talked about the ways that um you know um these functions were were used in things like you know if i remember correctly proving um that pi was a transcendental number i think that the trig functions were used in proving pi was a transcendental number um meaning it never repeats so uh Irrational numbers are numbers that never irrational repeat. Number so you have, you have you have this big group of irrational numbers, right? Yeah. Right. And um, so within the irrationals, you have two different major categories. You've got uh, algebraic irrational numbers. Those are defined as irrational numbers that can be found as the roots to uh, polynomial functions with integer coefficients. Okay. You know, I think I follow. X squared plus two X plus one equals zero, right? 
Yeah, yeah, two root, squares and roots in there. The roots to those are um, are are uh, both rational numbers and algebraic irrational numbers. Um, now, the transcendental numbers are are the numbers that go on forever. They 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 repeat forever with without they go on forever without repeating, but they cannot be the root to any algebraic polynomial equation with with integer coefficients and oh i think i get that right so those are transcendental because they transcend algebra yeah um and the interesting thing is that the transcendental numbers are the uh largest set of numbers but there's more transcendental than any other kind of number but we know so so few numbers that we have proven to actually be transcendental because it's very difficult. Um, so let me do a little tangent here. <laughs> tangent <laughs> talking about trigonometry. So um, one of the things in my um, you know going through learning the history of mathematics, um, you know, I learned about the extension of number systems. Right. So what is that? Uh, so the ancient Greeks. Um, their concept of number was a line because they were geometers above everything else. So to them, number was a line, right? That's why okay. they, like the number line, right? Yeah. That's why the Greeks did not have negative numbers. What, what, what's a negative length? That doesn't mean anything. Mm -hmm. What's negative area? That doesn't mean anything. So to the Greeks, there was no such thing as a negative number. Um, they also had this idea that all numbers were commensurable, that, that all numbers that, that you had, you know, you could take any two numbers and compare them and, and basically come up with a rational number. They, they, they basically, what that basically means is that all numbers are rational. So all numbers to the ancient Greeks were irrational or were, were rational. Were rational. Okay. Right. They, because to them, integer was everything. And you can construct right. all the rational numbers using only integers, right? Because the, what they are okay, is yeah. every rational number is a ratio of one integer to another integer. Right, okay. and then it just does that. So then the irrational numbers are those numbers that cannot be constructed as a ratio of one integer to another. And the first example of that was square root of two. Um, Oh, right. So uh, the, 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 the story goes that um, the uh, member of um, Euclid's school, I think it was Euclid. I could be wrong on that. You may want to fact check me on that later. Uh, it was one of the ancient Greek mathematicians. It may mm -hmm. not have been Euclid's school. Um, came up with a proof. It was a proof by contradiction that the square root of two was, in fact, irrational. Yeah. Um, and the, they were so offended by that, that they drowned him. Now that story is <laughs> oh, probably wow. apocryphal, but like the fact that that, that proof like stripped bare the fact that there were some serious deficiencies with their number system, but they, they literally could not conceive of how that could be different. It didn't make any sense to them that they yeah. kind of swept that under the rug and they said, well, we'll just pretend that didn't happen. Uh, and, and basically, <laughs> no. you know, um, the, 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 bones of the proof were basically, you know, um, I'm trying to remember how they, how they, how they did it. Um, 
they basically said, let's assume that uh, the square root of two is a rational number, right? And so we'll, we'll, we'll define that as a over b, where a and b are integers, and this number is reduced to its lowest form. So there's no common factors between a and b. Okay. And I'm so following. they said if the square root of two is a um, is 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 a over b and it's an, it, it's a rational number. I'm trying to remember how it worked out. So they they said let's let's square both sides. So you end up with you know two equals a squared over b squared, and then they they bring the b squared up to both sides and they say two b squared equals a squared, right? Um, and, and by, by doing a little bit of logic, a little bit of basic logic there, I'm not going to try to waste time right now by going through all the little details, but like <laughs> what they basically end up showing is that, um, going through, uh, simple logic from this equation two B squared equals a squared. Uh, they find out that going at it one way, you show that two must be uh, sorry, that, that, that a must be an even number. And then looking at it a different way, they show that B must be an even number. But since you, you began oh, by saying that, exactly, since you began by saying that A over B was irreducible, they can't both be even. You've come up with a contradiction. And all of the uh. logical steps in this were airtight, except for the very first one, which was your supposition that A over B was a rational number. Therefore, that <laughs> must be the assumption that was wrong. That's the Must heart of the problem. But yeah, that's a proof by contradiction. Clever. So, um, so that was, that was one of the really neat things. So that was how we extended the number system to go from rational numbers to irrational. Right. And checks out. Um, I want to say for the longest time, uh, once we had admitted irrational numbers, we assumed that all numbers must be algebraic rational irrational numbers that they could all be derived somehow from <laughs> and mathematicians tried for millennia literally for millennia to try to figure out what rational number pi would work out to be pi was like a, a special interest for so long because it's so unique and so weird right, right. um was it uh, Archimedes? I think Archimedes was the uh, Greek geometer who did an awful lot of work with circles and spheres and cylinders and, um, you know, cylindrical uh, pyramids and stuff like that and, and, and did an awful lot of work with it. Uh, but, you know, he never was able to, to crack uh, pi other than approximations. Um, but he was yeah. able to. Three, like the Bible said. Yeah. Well, he actually used some, he actually did some calculations uh, and with the ancient Greek number system that's incredibly cumbersome uh, but he actually did calculations and I want to say his estimation of pi was well it was several decimal places which was better than anyone had done prior to that yeah but the way that's that good. he basically did it was by using elementary geometry to um, say okay so let's take a circle and let's inscribe, an n-gon inside it. An n-gon would be a three-gon would be a triangle, uh, a four-gon would be yeah. a square. So let's just keep inscribing successively larger n-gons. So we'll inscribe and circumscribe that n-gon. 
Now, mm -hmm. that n-gon is something where, you know, using geometry and the fact that it's inscribed in, you know, a circle of a, a known radius, we can use geometry to figure out what the, uh, what the, the, the that, that little arc, uh, not arc, that little chord that bisects the circle at the perimeter is. And then add up, mm -hmm. you know, once you, you construct the area, if it's a six-gon, well, then you multiply it by six. So you do oh, that right. for the circumscribed and the inscribed. And you say, okay, well, pi, you know, when you when you go through and, and divide it out to figure out, you know, uh, you've got the circumference and you've got the radius, you can use that to figure out pi. You have an upper and lower bound. Oh, yeah. And so he kept constructing uh, n-gons of, of bigger and bigger, bigger, bigger n-gons. To, to, to limit that, to, to sandwich it ever more. So, and I forget how many yeah. did. I want to say 72. I could be wrong on that. It was, it was a big number. Wow. And if you think about um, uh, how much time it takes to hand calculate that stuff in our number system today, and then go back and look right. at the monstrosity that was the Greek number system, the ancient Greek number system, you'll realize that that was a, a major <laughs> undertaking. Mm -hmm. So, um, like I said, they had a lot of more free time back then. Well, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you had people like like uh, Archimedes who, like, well, he was one of those lucky people back then that basically got paid to think all day. Yeah. Um, that's the job, man. Yeah. yeah that's, no, the life. That's, that's the life, to get paid to think all day. Um, so uh, so we, we have irrational numbers. And... Um, one of the things that uh, you you can you can do is you can you can you can compare different levels of infinity, right? So we know that like mm -hmm. the number line is infinite in both directions, right? Yeah. You start counting at one, keep going. There's no end. There's no end to it. Um, so what about the irrational numbers? Oh, and this is the other thing. Um, so <laughs> there are just as many even numbers as there are integers. Now that's the thing that blows a lot of people's minds. They're like, well, hold on a second. There, there are half as many even numbers as there are integers. It's like, no, there's an infinite there's, amount. And that's because most people, and even if you are used to dealing with infinity, <laughs> you, you, you constantly have to rem remind yourself that you are not dealing with finite, finite numbers. You're dealing with the infinite. So, yeah. you know, the mapping relation really K equals 2J takes any any number j and maps it to an even number, assuming j is an integer, and maps it to an even number. One goes to two, two goes to four, three to six. Exactly. So one of the ways that we can say that two numbers have the same magnitude, the same size, is you know, if you can literally count them up, right? So if you can literally count them up, I see there's 19 here and there's 19 there, it's the same number. Um, yeah. But so, so uh, and this is the example that was given to me in one math class. Imagine that you're looking out into a large theater, right? And you want to know quickly if, if every seat is occupied, if they're the same number of patrons as there are seats. What it's pretty easy to tell. You could, you could count all of the patrons and you could count all the seats and see if they're the same. There's another way to do it, which is to look out and see, is every seat occupied by one and only one person and is no one standing? Yeah. If that's true, if every seat is occupied 
by one and only one person and no one's left standing, then they're the same number of seats as there are people. Uh, yeah, it's a lot easier to do that. Exactly. That's called a one-to-one map. So if you can generate a one-to-one map, it doesn't matter if your set is infinite or finite. You know that there's the same number of elements in that set. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's very easy to generate a one-to-one map with uh, integers. You know, you just write down the relation that generates a certain type of integer from the other type of integer. And you can see, yeah, okay, yeah, that, that shows that there's a one-to-one map. Mm-hmm. Uh, what about the, the irrationals? You know, um, how uh, can, oh, and then that kind of, of, of infinity is called countably infinite. Right. Because you're, you're counting. literally counting them. One, two, three. So the integers, the, 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 the positive integers, the negative integers, the um, odd numbers, even numbers, those are all countably infinite. Uh, what about the irrationals? Um, so what about the rational numbers? Um, are those countably infinite? Are there the same number of rational? Uh, could you count that high? I mean, you can't count forever. It but. doesn't matter if you can count forever, but the countably infinite means you can put two sets in. You, you can put that set into a one-to-one correspondence with with the integers, or specifically, yeah. you can call it counting with the positive integers, because those are the ones you count with. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, there is something called the diagonal proof, where you construct. Oh, I think I saw a YouTube video on this. Yeah, Go on. Yeah. Um, I want to say, uh, up and Adam did a video on this at one point. Oh yeah. She's great. Yeah. She's fantastic. Um, so, uh, the, the diagonal one is you basically have, um, you know, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, you have all the positive integers on one axis going forward. And then on the Y axis, you have an X axis, Y axis with all the, all the integers, right? These go on forever. And so for every square in here, you have X over Y, mm-hmm. right? So this is going to define... One over one, one over two, one over three, exactly. two over one, two over two, two over and, three. And you're going on forever in every direction, okay? And um, by doing this, by constructing this, what you've done is you've basically constructed every positive rational number. There's going to be a lot of repeats, Clearly, everything oh, along the diagonal yeah. is going to work out to one, and everything divided by two is going to be like what's on the top axis that was divided by one. So there's a lot yeah. of repeats in this, but still, you've generated every rational number, and you could you could just extend this, um, you know, in the reverse direction. Indefinitely. You, you could also then go the other way and make the negatives if you wanted to. Um, so this is where the diagonal part of that proof comes in. So how do we mm-hmm. count all of these rational numbers? Well, clearly, if you try going linearly along the axis, row one, row two, row three, that, that doesn't work because you have to go infinitely along row one before you hit row two. Mm-hmm. So instead of going horizontally, all the way scanning all the way to the end of the row and there's no end, and then coming back and doing this one, they went diagonally along here. So you would trace a, a, a diagonal and that guarantees like a squiggly. Yeah. And so basically, back and basically you're just assigning, you're just mapping every item you come across to a natural number, right? One, 
you know, at one comma one is mapped to one. Then two comma one yeah. is mapped to two. Two. Then one over two gets mapped to three. And so you just go back and forth like this and you just simply assign each one. And then when you get to ones where it's, it's, it's a repeat, you just skip it. I'm going to post a link to her video in the description for anybody right now who wants to go. I'm not hundred percent certain that it was her, but I, I'm, 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 if it someone her, has it was done someone it for sure. in that it was either her or it might've been physics girl, or it might've been, um, well, any of the other usual suspects that are mentioned in the <laughs> right. episodes, right? Minute physics, somebody's done it. Uh, it Minute might have math. been like sauce, or I keep wanting, I keep getting advertisements for his uh, curiosity box on Facebook, and I'm probably going to end up breaking <laughs> down and pulling the trigger on it because some of that stuff does look pretty awesome. So anyway, we're kind of like divergent. I warned you that I wanted to get off on tangent. <laughs> That's fine. So we were talking about the uh, the the diagonal proof. What is that? Yeah. So um, <laughs> so that proved that all of the rational numbers are countably infinite. Ra- rational numbers, countably infinite. Got it. Right. And so you might be thinking, well, hold on, Scott. You just kind of pulled a fast one. What about, uh, so you, you mentioned all the positive rational numbers. What about zero and all the negatives? Okay, fine. Map zero to zero, right? And then yeah. um, do your counting where you take all the 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 even countable numbers and assign them to the positive end and all the the odd ones you assign to the negative branch bam done oh right it's like you go like this up to the zero zero and then you just keep going through on the other yeah so by by doing a split like that then you can you can guarantee that you've mapped all of the rational numbers to the uh integers and because you've done that you have a one-to-one correspondence and they are the same size set. They're both countably infinite. So even though the rational numbers are what we call a dense set, uh, between any two rational numbers, you can always stick another one in there. And between... Right. Uh, 0.5 or whatever. Yeah. Between any two rational numbers, there, there's an infinite number of more rational numbers. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, between zero and one, there's an infinite number of rational numbers. So that kind of breaks people's brains. They're like, hold on a second. This reminds me of Zeno. Right. So you're telling me that, that, that between any two integers, there's an infinite number of rational numbers. And then you're going to try to tell me that there's the same number of rational numbers as there are integers. Like I I, I had this uh, discussion with one of the traders when I was at my previous job and it, it broke his brain. And I'm like, dude, you, you keep trying to think in terms of rational numbers, and we're talking about the infinite. That's why all of the arguments you're coming back to me don't work, because you're, you're implicitly thinking of this in right. finite number sense. And that, that that's fine, because like this is stuff that goes well beyond most people's experience. Yeah, you don't experience this in real life. You don't experience so. this in real life. And unless you've actually had any pure math classes or picked up a book on this because you're a nerd like me that just decides, hey, I'm going to teach <laughs> myself this stuff, you're never going to experience it. Um, so, uh, yeah, so that, that breaks a lot of people's brains. So it turns out the, the set of real numbers is uncountably infinite. The transcendental numbers? Real numbers. 
we're, we're real numbers. So the set of real numbers is uncountably infinite. And That's counting all the the infinite numbers between like zero and one you're talking about. Right. And the proof of this, I want to say this was, um, was it Cantor that came up with this proof? Um, and I'm blanking on the name of this proof, so I'm, I'm sure we we can add this information in later. But basically what he did, and this is another proof by contradiction. Uh, he said, okay, let's assume that we have a list of every number that exists, every possible number that exists. And we're just going to mm-hmm. start mapping them to, to the positive integers. One is, you know, this number here. The first one. Right. Two is the second yeah. one. And we're going to go ahead and um, assume that uh, these are all, um, you know, uh decimal numbers so we're starting you know uh, everything is zero point something right so we have this list of numbers and we're going to posit that we have an infinite list of all the numbers that possibly exist all the real numbers yeah, big list. that possibly exist you know maybe say all the real numbers between zero and one that possibly exist mm-hmm. um and what we're going to do is now that we posit that this is this list is complete, it's all of them. I'm going to take the first number, right? I'm going to take the first digit of the first number, and I'm going to change it to something else. Yeah. And the something else I'm going to change it to, if I remember correctly, cannot be nine or zero. The reason for that is to preclude the possibility of getting zero, 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 zero forever, or point nine 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 forever, which is actually one. All right. Yep. Um, but we're going to say whatever number, and we can certainly do that. Whatever, whatever that digit is, we're going to pick something else. So we have uh, we have this infinite list of of numbers that we've posited is complete. Got it. So we're going to take that first one. We're going to change the first digit to anything else other than zero and nine. Then we're going to take the second number on that list. We're going to take the second digit of that list and change it to anything other than what it is. And we're going to do this for the nth number on that list. We're going to find the nth digit and change it to something else. And each time we do this, we're going to construct a new number. Uh, Something that's not the the first digit of the first number in the first digit. Something that's not the second digit of the second number in the second digit, etc. So we've constructed a new number that we can guarantee is not anywhere on that list. So you've made a list that has all the numbers, but then you just made new numbers to put into it. Exactly. So that's a proof by contradiction. We posited this list was complete and it was countably infinite. And we just proved that we came up with a new number that's not anywhere on that list. Therefore, that list could not have been complete. Therefore, if we're if we're looking at the list of all real numbers, what we've just shown is that list is not countably infinite. It just goes on forever. Right. And so we know that, well, obviously the integers are countably infinite because that's what we literally use to construct the, the concept of countably infinite. And um, we know that all of the rational numbers are countably infinite uh, because we use that diagonalization argument to show that you can map them all to the natural numbers. 
Uh, and it turns out algebraic irrational numbers are also countably infinite because you can use a similar trick to construct all the possible um, formulas, all the possible polynomial expressions with integer coefficients mm. uh, using yeah. a similar kind of construction to the polyno to, to that diagonal and then do the same thing. So oh, you can. You can. Okay. Um, it's a little bit more complex. I'm not going to go into it now. Um, <laughs> yeah. But yes, you can basically do the same thing. So you can prove that the algebraic irrationals are countably infinite. What's left? The transcendental numbers. Those are the ones that are uncountably infinite. And paradoxically, those are the ones that we have the fewest examples that we know for absolute certain <laughs> are transcendental because proving they're transcendental is so hard. Um, our, 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 our mathematics is basically built, even today, most of mathematics is still pretty much built on the concept of, of integers at its core somewhere. A number line. So it's really hard to use that as a tool to discover things that cannot be based on integers in any way, shape, or form. Oh, oh that makes sense. So, um, like... Sounds like a good problem. Yeah. Um, I, I want to say the first two numbers that were demonstrated to be transcendental are pi and e. That checks out. Pi for sure. Yep. I always hear about e. Never... I mean, I did it in co in high school, I guess, maybe college. Then I stopped needing to do E. Yeah. So I've forgotten about all about it. It shows up everywhere in physics and engineering. You know, anytime you have any kind of a, you know, decay response, you'll typically use E. Um, you know, and the thing is that a lot of times E will be used. I mean, you could use, for example, like if you're talking about half-lives, you could certainly also use two because it's a half-life but still, a lot of the formulas yeah. will use E, and, and the natural log of 2 will pop up in there somewhere to convert the base. But that's just basically, you know, <laughs> um, just to make everything consistent and use E everywhere, a lot of times you'll see that that nomenclature. Uh, so earlier you mentioned something called the proof of the infinitude of primes. Tell me about that. Okay, so um, this is a proof that's several thousand years old. Uh <clears throat> It's attributed to Euclid, and that doesn't necessarily mean Euclid personally, but his school of mathematics. Um, and yeah. it, it basically says it's another proof by contradiction. And that's a very p powerful uh, method of proof is proof by contradiction, where you make an assumption, then you follow all these simple logical steps that you can, you can demonstrate each of these steps is logically sound. And then, then you right. get to a contradiction. And... That means that one of your steps was wrong. And as long as you can defend every step aside from right. your initial assumption, you've proven that your initial assumption, in fact, was incorrect. Um, Makes sense to me. So uh, this is the proof of the infinitude of primes. And I think it's a, a really good one to introduce people to the idea of proof and how mathematical proof is so powerful and, and so far-reaching. Um I mean, pretty much everyone knows what a prime number is. It's a number that is only divisible by itself and by one. Right. And by definition, one is excluded from the list of primes for the simple reason that almost every proof involving primes, you have to exclude one as a special case anyway. So that kind of tells <laughs> you that, well, maybe one is special in that regard. Um, Interesting. So uh, the question that they posed was, is the list of primes infinite? 
they want to know. So, you know, we, we always seem to be able to come up with a bigger prime is the list infinite. Um, so yeah. they ask themselves, okay, let's assume that we have a finite list of primes, right? So a list with a, a fixed number of elements. Yeah. Every number on that list is divisible by itself and by one. So if we multiply every number on that list together, we get a compound number. It's divisible by every mm. element on that list and one. What if we add yeah. one to that number we just generated? If we add one to that list, to that number we just generated, we, we take every list on our supposedly complete list of primes. Mm -hmm. We take every number on that list and we multiply them together. And now we add one. Now we have a new number that is not divisible by any of the numbers on that list. Okay. And that leaves two options. Either that number itself is a new prime divisible only by itself for one, or it has different prime factors that are not any of the numbers on that list. Right. Checks out. Either way you look at it, you've generated one or more prime numbers. I'm not quite following. Sorry. Okay. So, so you have, you have a list of prime numbers and we're going to say, we're going to posit this list is prime. Oh, sorry. This list is complete. Um, this list of, of, of prime numbers that we have is complete. It's every prime number that exists. That's our assumption. Yeah. That's our initial assumption. Does this work if you just grab a few prime numbers and work with them, for example? Yeah, yeah. Three, you five, seven. Pick a list of prime numbers, a finite list of prime numbers, and you know, three, five, seven. Multiply those together, and now add one. Yeah. And the number you get will. One hundred and five. Plus one hundred and six. So that has obviously as 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 a factor two which is a, a prime number yeah. not on your list. Oh, okay. So once you do all the factors of that number that you just got and, and do a prime number decomposition of it, you'll have more prime numbers to add. Or maybe the new number you came up with is itself prime, in which case that's the number you add to your list. Okay, yeah, I got so it. So now you have more prime numbers than you started with, and you had already said, that this list was complete. So that wasn't true. Clearly <laughs> something's amiss. Which means, you know, you, you, you made all these logically defendable steps and you came to a contradiction, which means that one of your assumptions was false. The only assumption that could possibly have been false was your initial assumption that that list was complete. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Um, no, I think I follow that. It makes sense. Yeah. I have one final question I just thought of. My question is, why should people care about all of these number things? Um, that's the question. So I kind of got into this initially because that's the question that a lot of middle schoolers ask when they first start getting into more advanced mathematics other than the you know addition, subtraction, basic arithmetic that they're used to up to that point is why do we right. really know this stuff? Um. You know, and uh, so 
why why do we need to know this stuff? So if you think about mm-hmm. the, the average person, what math do you need to know? If you're not an engineer, if you're not basic scientist, arithmetic, you need to know basic arithmetic. You need to know how to estimate, right? Perfect example. Yeah. I I need to paint the I need to paint the walls in my house. You know how much paint do I need? If I know how many gallons it takes to paint this much area, how do I estimate the area of my house? The area of all the walls in my house. Being able to estimate is is a, a fantastic, um, you know, uh, skill right. to have. Um, but these days, like you, you go back to when you were a kid, and your your teachers would say, "Are you always going to have a, a calculator at your fingertip?" <laughs> Well, they didn't know about these devices, no, did they? But uh, man, no, yeah, we do have a calculator at our disposal every day. And I have Wolfram Alpha on my phone. As long as I've got power and internet connection, I can do advanced calculus without thinking about it myself. Yeah. You know, I just type in the question, or you, you got Chat GPT, you can do that with. But um, so, yeah, why <laughs> does the average person need to know this stuff? Um, well, uh, in short, most people don't need to know these things per se. Um, But like I came across a post that was a a math teacher that was sharing something that they were asked, you know, why do I need to know this? And, um, you know, the person that asked was someone who was on the football team. Why do I need to learn calculus? And, you know, the the teachers thought about for a second and said, so, um, you know, you, you do these exercises, you know, uh, when you're training, you know, you do, you do, you do heavy weight lifting and stuff like that. You, you do all this, you know, you exercise in all the different muscles in your body and stuff. Is there anything you're ever going to do in football where you have to bench press a member of the other team? <laughs> the guys have, no, 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 I've never got to bench press a member. This is, so, so why do you do that? No, to, to make my overall body stronger. Bingo. Yeah. That's why, um, you are creating neural pathways by doing all this like you know we actually have the neuroscience to justify this you know looking at at brain scans and so on when you are learning these advanced concepts and 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 so there's there's two things there's 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 building neural pathways in your brain for abstract thinking which is very important a very important thing and then there's also the whole teaching yourself how to learn new things which is a skill you will need for the rest of your life. Um, right. You know, the ability to, to, to be an autodidact and learn new things when you don't have a teacher. And it's easier today than it's been at any point in history where, you know, you've got all these resources online for free or a dizzyingly cheap price <laughs> and access to books. Um, you know, I didn't have uh, that kind of, of, of thing available to me in the 70s when I was a bored kid that wanted to go faster than my teachers could. And my parents couldn't <laughs> afford to put me into a ritzy uh, uh, private school. But if I'd had that ability today, well, who am I kidding? I'd probably just have played Minecraft all the time. But um, if that wasn't an <laughs> no. option, if you only had the educational side of things, you damn well better believe that that 10-year-old me would have like had no end of, of, of fun, like teaching myself all sorts of advanced concepts because I had Coursera, because I had Duolingo, because I had, you know, um, curiosity, 
or any of these other right. uh, educational services that that are are very cheap and allow you to learn all kinds of advanced concepts, or Amazon, where I can go and find, you know, the exact book every for book the thing that ever. I want. Yeah, it's pretty, like just the human nature of curiosity and wanting to learn is just such a ingrained part of who we are, and it's really great. Who was there's a podcast I listen to, Sean Carroll. He has a similar answer where it was like, I want, I don't think everyone needs to know like advanced math or physics or whatever, but I want to live in a world where people have access to that because precisely those people who are into it are going to come up with new technologies that are going to make my life better. Yeah. And it just makes the world better in general. Yeah. And then another answer to why do I need to know this? Well, <laughs> you probably don't. The fact that you are right. asking me this question tells me that you have little interest in this field. Um, yeah. And that's not meant to be disparaging. You know, um, I am not terribly interested in, I can't think of anything. I'm not terribly interested. <laughs> You're interested in everything. I mean, but like, no, most people have a couple of very strong interests and in things that they just, they, their eyes glaze over when you start going up and talking about it. I don't care about accounting. Yeah. Right. I care about knowing only enough accounting I need to know to do the stuff I need to do, but like the advanced stuff in accounting, I probably don't care about. Right. Even not that. But I want there, but I want there to be accountants in the world. I understand their value and their purpose. Exactly. And so if you're taking, if you're, if you're forced to take a basic accounting class and nine tenths of us are going to think that class is torture. But someone in that class would be like, wow, this is cool. I love this. I want to do this. <laughs> well, that's who that class was for. You know? Right. Um, the, 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 the physics and the calculus class and, and everything else that was the more advanced math and science in school, that was to help uh, people uncover who they want to be. Exactly. Some of that stuff won't have any meaning for you. You don't care. That's fine. Move on. Uh, but some of that stuff... You know, maybe maybe you found a lot of interest in history, and so you decide you wanted to, to study history instead of physics, and now you want to be a physics uh, a history professor, um, or you want That's great. yeah, yeah, I love it. But then there's a third answer, which is um, I want everyone, whether they're a professional physicist or not to have a basic understanding of science because everyone in the society at some point is going to be a voter. And I want them True. to have some basic understanding of these concepts so we don't have to fear, I don't know, people deciding to vote to make vaccination illegal. Yeah, we need everybody. Yeah, there's a certain level of basic understanding that really society will be better off if everyone understands it. Right. Awesome. I think that's great. Any last message you want to sign off with? Um, I don't know. I'd say find that there's some special interest that you're like, hey, why has this always been this way? You know, um, there is probably resources online for you to go and dig into that. There's probably a book about that on Amazon that you can find. And I would recommend anyone, if you have that, that, that curiosity in the back of your brain, go find the answer. Go find out what it is. And, you know, it turns out that the thing that you're interested in is so unique that no one's written a book about exactly that. I don't know. Maybe that's the book there you, you have to write. Entrepreneurial spirit, bringing that extra income stream. Yeah. 
But yeah, thank you so much, Scott, for coming on and sharing with us all about the history of mathematics and why math is important. I appreciate it. And I had a great time. It was fun.